Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand made famous by Martina Hingis, Novak Djokovic, John McEnroe, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. He was born in Belgrade when it was Yugoslavia, and in 2001, won the Junior Australian Open, and was the number one junior in the world. He was a member of the 2010 Serbian Davis Cup Championship team, and in 2012 reached a career high of number eight in the world. Janko Tipsarevic is today's guest. Janko joined me live via Zoom from his car in Belgrade, Serbia. Apologies for some iffy audio. My man, are you there? I am here. Can are you, you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you beautiful. Are you driving? What are you doing? I am, I am driving. I'm sorry about that. But, no, uh, but what, what car is that with such a big uh, moonroof? Sunroof? It's a, it's a Porsche Cayenne. <laughs> beautiful, man. I love, I love the interior. The leather interior is fantastic. What, thank you, thank you. Now, what color is the car? The color is white. White. A white Porsche yeah, Cayenne. Yeah. It wasn't my choice, actually. It was my wife's choice. So I, I had li- very little to say, but I like it anyway. <laughs> Gentlemen, you hear is former world number eight driving through the streets of, I think, Belgrade. Belgrade, you're right. Incredible. Going to, going to work. Sorry. I, my it's eight, alarm, it's my alarm clock didn't went off, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm a good driver, driving very steady. The uh, phone is set. I'm this is a tr- at the road. This is tremendous. It's, it's uh, world, former world number eight, uh, Janko Tipsarevic. Can't thank you enough for joining me, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We've been trying to do this for a while. Well, listen, I introduced myself to you. You were coming off the court probably on a Thursday before Indian Wells was going to begin. You were training with Krajanovic. Yes. And then the world went buck wild. The world went crazy. It was, I remember, I remember meeting you, obviously. I remember listening to your podcast later that day because you told me about it. And just a few days after that, it was... I remember actually the scene. I was at the players' desks arguing with practice because they moved Philip's court with Raonic because of whatever practice. Practice court people tend to fuck up uh, very often. So then they moved us to a different court. But I was arguing, and then the guy told me, "Yeah, but I think we're arguing for no reason because there probably won't be any tournament." And I was like, "What did you just say?" Yeah, they're having an argument about uh, the coronavirus. There's not going to be any tournament. So anyway, ignore that completely. We make the necessary arrangements. And I go outside and I tell to my crew, can you imagine what this guy just told me? That there's not going to be a tournament. And five minutes later, I got a message from Goran, Novak's coach, saying, hey, the tournament's canceled uh, and that's it. Virus, yeah, we should try and get to LA as soon as possible. So I tell you, it was one of the most shocking moments of my my life. Uh, we do a five-set format. The first set is the off-the-court report. My man, you had a baby 
during the pandemic. So first and foremost, congratulations. Thank uh, you. And second of all, what was that experience like? It's always a good time to have a baby. There's never a bad time to have a baby, I'll tell you that. But uh, having it during the corona time, I am very lucky because my wife is not one of those panicky, you know, wives that is like afraid of disease or, or afraid of getting viruses or stuff like that. She was very brave during these times. She gave birth in a private clinic in Belgrade. Little baby Noah was born. So outside of all of us having to wear masks and protective gear during that period, it was a very wonderful time for me and my family. Now, um, was there any um, problem? Was there any unusual situation because of the Corona during to the? Be you know, you had to, to be honest with you, it was very smooth. Like we had a baby girl six years ago, and now it went more smooth than when she gave birth to a normal baby. We were, we were following all the procedures, all the regulations. Uh, there was a limited amount of women which were giving birth in the hospital due to uh, the disease, but everything went surprisingly smooth. We were ready for, a, I don't want to say a disaster, but you know, you, you never know when you're having a baby in the time of a pandemic. I think nobody knows how that is. Hey, brother. Everything, everything say, went incredibly smooth. We say mazel tov. We keep it moving. That's it. Mazel tov. True that. Now, um, tell the truth. Will you force this child to become a professional tennis player? Ah, never, ever, ever. I was lucky enough to have, I want to say, quite normal parents, which were never, ever forcing me to, to play, to practice. I saw with my own eyes the, the result of children being, I don't want to even say children being abused, but let's say children being forced into doing something which they don't want to do. The only way that I would start getting involved if my uh, girl and boy want to play really professional tennis is if I see that they are basically dying for it. Like that they are the ones which are having the driving force. They will play tennis, and I think they will play good enough tennis to potentially go to the U.S. and go to college one day. Let's move into our second set. This is the On The Court Report. Uh, Yanko, normally we'd be discussing Wimbledon, and we're not. We're just absolutely not. I have five or six or seven things I want to ask you about. We don't have to sit down on anything too long. Are you ready? I am. First and foremost, what happened at the Adria Tour? What are your perceptions of this situation? Adria Tour was an incredible event. I think it's, if we talk about purely the event, what Novak's and Novak's people were able to organize in just one month time is really, really incredible. 
the issue was that the event was not made in the right time due to the pandemic. Uh, second of all, Novak and his crew did not break any rules or laws because Serbia was one of the countries that had the least amount of coronavirus infected people because the lockdown here over the first few few months was very very brutal trust me i had i personally had isolation for 28 days straight not leaving my apartment and then later on it was very very brutal but because of that we had an incredible low amount of infected people and we were basically thinking that we we have beaten corona but unfortunately that wasn't the case and three people got infected the problem was that the perception of this unnecessarily was that you know guys went out and had a good time after the tournament and then everybody started getting on Noah's back hey, you're not protecting the players you're not which is is not true at all so i think it was a glorious event probably not made in the right time have you spoken to novak i have he felt quite bad in the first few days of finding out to have that he has corona but this was probably because of all the psychological pressure that he was dealing with getting killed by international and local media and he's feeling completely fine for the last five to seven days and i think yesterday he did or today he's doing the second test to see how is he positive or not do you think that the the, the, the guys have been careless to a, degree, uh, to a degree, yes. But then again, if you're getting an information, I'm not blaming our government, but if you're getting an information that we have 20 people in the whole country infected and football games are allowed and everything is you know, allowed, then you kind of think, okay, there is really no more corona. Because I remind you again, three days before Adria Tour happened, there was a football match of 30,000 people because the information that we were getting was that there is an incredible, incredibly low amount of people which are infected. So, yeah, you can say to a degree, yes, they shouldn't maybe have gone to, to a nightclub without wearing gloves and masks and they should care a bit more but definitely not to a degree that everybody is condemning Novak and the guys. Is that how you feel that Novak has been eviscerated in an unfair way? It is, but I think that's nothing new for him. We have to deal with this, we have to deal with this quite often. Uh, I personally am coming from a country which in the past, and I'm not saying right now because I feel that they're doing a good job, in the past was, was terribly politically run. I remind you, Serbia in the last 20 years had 
two, three wars, which means that Serbia was in the news of your beloved CNN or BBC as the bad guys. I don't think if any of the other superstars have done this, they would be killed in the media uh, like Noah was. So you think, so you think that you think you, you think that there's a double standard uh, between the other players and Novak in the media. I think I think not all the time because there are places in the world where people love Novak much more, like Asia, Russia, Italy. I think Novak is the favorite foreign Italian player, uh, but. To a degree of, let's put it like this, Anglo-Saxonic media. I don't think that we should even discuss and talk about this. If you look at the few US Open finals or the Wimbledon final, I think it's actually disgusting how the crowd was treating him. And, okay. and, and, and do you think that his fans on Twitter have a case against, you know, sort of the press. Uh, they seem to think that Ben Rothenberg is against him, for example. If you are constantly writing shit about somebody, then there is a tendency to think, okay, this guy has a bone to pick with him. And if you see, he is quite often writing more shit about Novak in contrary to writing good stuff. Now, I'm sure he has written some good articles and pieces about him, but it, the tendency is to write shit. So then you can easily make the case, okay, this guy doesn't really like Novak. And it's fine. I think as a journalist, you have the right to be, to be biased. You have the right to say, I like this guy or I don't like this guy. So they do have a case, I think. Do you think that the top guys, guys with huge audiences, need to be careful, they need to be more careful than others? Uh, proper answer is yes. I think you should be you, irrelevantly of if you're number five or number three or number one in the world. It doesn't really matter. So I think somebody like Rafa would behave exactly the same even if he's not Rafa. And I also think somebody like Nick would behave exactly like he is right now even if he's number one in the world. So to shorten my answer, no, I don't believe that. You are literally, are you literally walking into your academy? Is that what you're doing? I'm actually going to Novak's Academy. Look, Andrea Tour. You're at no you're at Novak's Academy right now. Yes, because uh, we'll talk about that. We have a tournament going on in our academy, the Eastern European Championship. So our hard courts are full. So we made <laughs> we made a deal with the 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 Novak's club that we do our practices here because he has three hard courts 
and all of our courts are full. <laughs> now, is that a case of U.S. Open balls, Wilson U.S. Open it's, balls? No, it's a case of Dunlop balls. Dunlop balls, Dunlop balls. The, yeah, the Australian Dunlop. Open balls. Now, how has the Eastern Europe, European tour gone for you? It was a, a roller coaster ride. I'll tell you that much. Um, the main issue was that the virus didn't move to a direction where I hoped it would move. And let me elaborate. We, the first two weeks of men were played. We had around 10 top 100 players which were competing. And everything went well. The issue was that the spikes of corona cases not only in Serbia, but I'm sure you saw this, all over the world has gone up everywhere. There's even talk about canceling the US Open right now. So this uh, doesn't help the continuation. Plus, Adria Tour didn't help us. But, you know, this is... Uh, all those things didn't help, but I am tremendously happy and proud that we were able to play, I want to say, 110 matches in the first two weeks, guys, with 10 or 8 top 100 players competing. The girls are starting, they started already on Monday, a few days ago, with uh, 4 or 5 top 100 WTA players. And then after these two weeks, we have another two weeks of a mixed event. So it took, it took a lot of effort and dedication to create this monster of an event, which is six weeks long. <laughs> How would you describe the level? I want to say if you compare us to any other league, we had, and the volume that we had, we had by far the highest level in the world. Now, if you compare us to Adria Tour or, or Muratovlu's event, where they have, in Adria Tour, they had eight guys, and in Muratovlu, they have like six guys, then, yes, our level is not comparable. But if you compare us with the volume, with these, these are different kinds of events. If you compare us with an event of a similar volume of uh, how many matches and players are playing, we are by far the world's strongest team. What was your opinion of the Moritoglu event? I think Patrick is an entrepreneur. I think for a while now he's talking about the entertainment aspect of tennis. And therefore the lack, the lack of it. So I uh, applauded from a perspective of security and safety. If you see it, well, if you see it from an outside, I don't know what the players are doing after they play matches, but at least for the cameras, everything is very clothed in a bubble-like manner. What did you uh, think of the four, peer, the four quarters and no towels and the just kind of the fast-paced rock'em, sock'em style? I applaud the no towels, no ball boys, 
no line empire. They, no, they have line empires. Uh, I applaud the safety aspect of it. The four quarters by time, I'm not sure yet. Yeah, I okay. think I need some time to digest it. That's fair. I'm not sure yet. Yanko, what are you doing with Tip Saravich Academy? What's the story over there? How many courts do you have? Are you a high yeah. perf- are you a high performance training facility? Yeah. Are you a relaxed club? What are you? Are you Boletary of Belgrade? <laughs> no, we're not. Uh, seven years ago, we started. Uh, we started. Uh, I opened the club with only three courts, but we called it an academy immediately because of the system and of the way of our work. I never saw myself, and I'm not condemning any of these monster academies as a commercial academy, like uh, whatever, Muratoglu or Nadal or whatever. We, we, our path and our way is to be a high-performance tennis academy because, you know, even though we offer an option of schooling or, or homeschooling, Serbia is not a really sexy destination to send your children to go to school, right? But in the last 10 years, I think we had some incredible tennis players. So the aura of us is that in Serbia, we play serious tennis. Now, the tennis in Serbia, unfortunately, didn't uh, use the full, I want to say, throttle of the snowball effect. And wasn't able to organize itself in a proper way. But this gave us the edge and the opportunity to pick up all the best coaches that we have in the country. Long story short, after three years of having the smaller club, we opened another club of three courts. After one year, those two clubs were full. So two years ago, we took another facility of 10 courts where the tournament is happening. One year later, my dream of globalizing the brand started to come true and we opened the facility in Cancun, Mexico, with 10 other courts. For months after that, we opened uh, three facilities of 25 courts in Shenzhen, China. Come on! Yeah. By the end of the year, October, we will open two more facilities in Tel Aviv, Israel. And uh, we were supposed to open Berlin by the end of the year, but Corona kind of slowed us down. So my dream of globalizing the brand in a manner and in a way that I would like to do it is slowly coming true. Obviously, Corona is not helping any one of us. No. But uh, it's going quite nicely. I was going to ask you, I was going to say, listen, are you making a fortune? Do you feel pressure? Or is everything just a very um, unusual moment? You know, in the, last, in the last five years of my career, sadly, I had a tremendous amount of injuries. So this gave me time to think about the next step of my life. I had good guidance in Dirk Hordorf, who was my longtime coach and manager, in terms of understanding business side of tennis. The business side of tennis is really tricky. Monetizing tennis as a business without being a player or being a coach is, I don't want to say incredibly hard, but it's not easy. So 
I am tremendously happy that the growth that is happening to us is being done organically. So starting from a small club in three ports, ending up, not ending up being in a position that we have three facilities in Belgrade, taking the fourth one in, in October when the, when the winter season starts and opening already in two other countries. So the snowball effect that I was preaching and talking about for a long time is happening. It's just that I want to say I feel we are a very well run organization which started from only a couple of employees. And right now, if we talk about international coaches, we have around, I want to say 120, 130 people working for the organization, maybe more. That's no joke. But uh, yeah. That's no unbelievable, joke. man. It feels like you were, you were on the court two, three years ago. Now you got academies on, on four continents. You know, Craig, I feel honestly, and this may sound silly because I had a decent career. I honestly feel sometimes I was born to do this. I wasn't born to play tennis, but I was born to do this. What can you tell me about the U.S. Open? If we, and we don't know what's going to happen in a week, right? But if we speak today, I think even if there are no spikes of corona cases, and let's say the, the cases of corona in the whatever, in New York or in states, stayed in a controlled environment, which they are right now. And there is no spike. I think it would be very hard to organize it without having an international scandal. And I'm telling you this for a simple reason, that even though USDA is really trying and giving their best to have an event, and the reason is obviously money. The reason is $100 million, which they will earn from having the US, US Open. Uh, I think it will be incredibly difficult to, to organize an event in this stage of the pandemic, unless we all understand that condemning Novak for Grievor or somebody else getting Corona was completely unnecessary. And I'll give you a simple example. The U.S. Open is saying that they are planning not to play qualies, right? That's a completely different, terrible uh, issue. But if we say there is 128 men, 128 women, 32 men and 32 women doubles teams. And all of this times two because they, everybody has a right for one coach or one person. If we add... The people in the organization which are able to enter the Ash Stadium, we are on around 1,500 people in yes. the closed environment. Yeah, you just did the math. Yeah, so what happens if somebody like me going there as a coach, I get corona? Is the tournament going to be canceled? Or am I just going to be removed from the equation and be in self-isolation until I get help? What happens if a player in the second round gets corona? Is he just removed or is the tournament canceled or are 1,500 people getting tested? 
So if we say, okay, a single person gets corona, he's removed from the draw, the tournament goes on, then we have to admit that all this shit talk about Novak was completely unnecessary. Okay, one guy got corona, he's removed from the exhibition, the show must go on, as you say. If it's, <laughs> if it's double standards and then the tournament is cancelled because a single person gets corona, which it's impossible for an organization like US Open to control, then I don't think it's necessary to make the tournament in the first place. Let's move into our third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. I'm going to keep this as tight as I can because I know that you've got to get on the court. My, my question to you is this. What was it like to be the world number one junior, 14s, 16s, 18s? This period definitely helped me a lot to get international sponsoring in order to cover my expenses and continue my career. But what was my it father, like? But what? Sorry, what was it like to be a young, like the best tennis player on the planet at 14 years old? I mean, were you not going to school? Were you basically living like a pro athlete? Was it? I was living. I was living like a pro athlete. I finished my. This was one of the toughest periods of my life because my mom was very strict and wanted me to go to school. So I finished my primary school and the first grade of my high school training three hours, four hours a day and going to school at the same time and trying to have good grades. And I had very good grades. Uh, but at one point, I just started to, to fall apart because the, the rhythm was impossible. Then we decided to uh, go to the same high school but only to have exams not to kind of like a college situation which gave me the opportunity to train twice a day and I could schedule or try to schedule my exams in accordance to my tournaments so you hit the right spot I was basically at the age of 14 living like a pro athlete were you happy or were you um, did you feel like you were missing things in your life there were parts of, I want to say, a week or a year or whatever where I felt I am missing shit because I see my friends. I don't want to say going out because I'll tell you a little secret. I started going out into clubs when I was 13, very, very young. So I didn't feel I missed out on the nightlife and all the stupid stuff when what you do when you're young. But you know, these reunions, hanging out, you know, I, I didn't have that because I was so smashed and tired by the end of the day that I just had to go to bed. Did your junior career adversely affect your pro career? Did you play too much tennis as a junior? Was it too serious as a junior? No. No. The junior career affected my beginning of the senior career. And the reason, it's the psychological aspect where all of a sudden I was a very hard worker. So the reason why I was number one was not only because you could hypothetically say that I was talented. The reason was also hard work. But the essence of it was that I was playing against boys. I was playing against a group of boys which were going from one tournament to another. But then all of a sudden, and I was even... I was the world number one as one year younger. So at 
the age of 16 or 17. You were playing up. So then in my own age, I, yeah, I decided not to play juniors anymore and to play pro. But I was suddenly not playing against boys. I was playing against men. And I was being, I don't want to say a spoiled brat or a coward, which is maybe too strong of a word. But I didn't understand that if I wanted to prove myself on an international men's scene, I needed to put my life to the next level. The professionalism and the devotion outside of the tennis court had to be on a different level, which sadly was not for a period of like two years. This is why it took me almost, almost three years to break into the top 100. Who is Dirk Hordorf to you? Dirk Hordorf is a second father figure in my life. In a very young age. Let me just stop you real quick. Dirk Hordorf is one of the more unusual characters, insiders in tennis. Uh, I know very little about him. He's a German. I think he was in head of the German uh, Federation. He was Yanko's coach. I, I, I really know very little about him. Uh, continue, Yanko. Sorry. Dirk Hordorf is, even though he hates to admit it, he doesn't want to say it, is one of the, mo one of the most powerful people in tennis. 100%. I've heard it, and no one knows about this guy. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, Dirk Hordorf is a second father figure to me. He has been my manager for most of my professional career. But he was your coach. And for the last part of my career, he was my coach for the period of like seven, eight years. And this guy smoked, he's smoking cigarettes. He smokes around two packs a day. And he's quite overweight. And he just enjoys life. Has a very philanthropic approach towards life. People say before he's me, a great he guy. A, sorry, sorry. People, uh, before me, he had a long-lasting relationship with the ex-world number five, Rainer Schutter. And I was basically his second or third player. He's a very unique character. You either love him or you dislike him. But if you get to know him, I think he's one of the nicest and warmest souls that I ever met. And definitely the smartest person that I know till this day. How did you meet him? What did he do I met him. I met him when I was 20 years old, passing my first qualities of a Grand Slam at the US Open. Uh, and I was thinking that I'm at, in the, at the top of the world, you know, because I passed qualities and I was scheduled to play in Armstrong Stadium against Mark Filipusis. So I'm this hot shot young player. When he, we had a, a, a talk on the, you know, the player lounge area where it is in front and he told me, you know, you are quite overweight. <laughs> you do these things right but there are also these things which you do quite terrible and if you don't fix them there is very little to no chance that you will use your full potential and your full potential is obviously there i don't have to tell you this because you were world number one until 14 16 and 18. so it was one of the first reality like true reality checks from a foreign outside person we got to know each other and very soon, a year after, we signed a management contract and 
the rest is history when it comes to our relationship. Did he, how, how important was he to get you to eat in the world? He was the crucial, uh, crucial character in my career outside of my wife and my family that helped me to, to achieve uh, being top 10 for two years. And the, re the main reason is that he, he simplified my life and simplified my game because I was this talented young player, which actually at one point, my statistics, even though my career high ranking was like 30, 40 at that time, my statistics against top 10 players was almost 50%, which means every second guy from the top 10 that I play, I'm able to beat. But my consistency was terrible. Terrible, terrible. Terrible. So, yeah. So he simplified my life and simplified my tennis. In, not invented, but incorporated certain rules and patterns of behavior outside the court and behavior on the court. What do you do in these situations? Now, I know it sounds very German, but it's in, in, it's, it's, this was exactly what I needed at that time to use my full potential. Your best moment as a pro tennis player? Victor Troitsky winning the last point against Michael Lodra and Serbia winning the Davis Cup. I know that I'm probably the only tennis player when I say that my favorite moment of my professional career is when somebody else won a match. But... Uh, I'm very happy and proud to say that this was my uh, most memorable moment of my professional tennis career, Serbia winning days. Man, what, a, what an amazing thing that your greatest uh, moment in tennis is the second year you won the Davis Cup. And actually, when somebody else won the match, I wasn't even a part of that. I was part of the team at, that, says, at that finals uh, playing like shit. Uh, that particular match but I remember it was even though Novak was leading the crew and not losing a single match it was a team effort where you know I was the hero of the semi-finals Nenad was winning a bunch of doubles Victor was the obvious hero of the finals in uh, winning uh, the final deciding match which is I tell you the biggest pressure you can ever think of in in the world of tennis but it was a team effort with obviously Novak leading the way and not losing a single match that year. What has it been like to have a front row seat to see Novak Djokovic achieve what he has achieved? I feel that this helped all of us tremendously. Um, even though Novak is three years younger than me, I learned a great deal from him. Um, when you have somebody like Novak as this big part of your life, just having, as you mentioned, the front row seat in seeing what this is doing, then you start thinking by yourself, this thing is not impossible. If this guy can do what he does, there's no reason why I shouldn't be top 30. There's no reason why I shouldn't be top 20. Why shouldn't I be top 10? You ask, you tend to ask yourself these questions. And just by seeing this every single day makes you, you know, push yourself more in hypothetically not, I think you have a saying in the States, I don't want to be benched. 
I don't want to sit on the bench and see as the life and as the career goes by. I want to get in there and do something. Let's move into our fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. I just say it. You say what comes into your mind, okay? Let's go. Where do you keep your trophies? Most of my trophies I lost or gave away. Your credentials, do you save them and where do you keep them if you do? At my parents' place. Are they, uh, where are they in a box? Are they somewhere? Are they, are they on a pedestal? In the, in the hallway. When you enter uh, my parents' apartment, in the hallway there's, I don't know, 500 credentials starting from my junior days. Incredible. In parents' hallway. Uh, yeah. what's, the, what's the most uh, craziest thing you ever did with prize money after you won, after you won some big-time prize money? This is in the very, very beginning. Like, <laughs> obviously, I don't want to say crazy. Let's say I saved up and I invested money. That's kind of boring, right? Or yes. bought a car or something. Yes. The most yes. crazy shit I did with prize money, I remember, I think I won a future or whatever. And at that time, we were really struggling with money. I remember I bought the prize money for winning a future was, I want to say, like a thousand euros or thousand something euros. And I remember I wanted this Armani coat forever. <laughs> <laughs> so I basically blew all my uh, like winning prize money in buying an Armani coat, which I didn't really wear that much. But I remember at that time I wanted it so bad that I had to do it. <laughs> Your favorite tournament? My favorite tournament is... I want to say the U.S. Open because of the memories there. Your favorite city? Miami. If you exclude Belgrade where I live, my favorite city outside of Belgrade is Miami. The best endorsement deal you ever really had? The best endorsement deal and the one that I have the most. If we're not only talking from which endorsement deal did I earn the most money, if I'm talking about the deal that I was most proud of and had the best time of my life, it's by far Oakley. I wanted that company so bad when I was young because Michael was, uh, Jordan was wearing the glasses and all of my idols. And then when they picked me up when I was 16 and then later on paid me for wearing it, it was, I tell you, a dream come true. Shout out to Oakley. Oakley Blake. Shout out to Pat. What's the, the best EXO you ever played? Did you ever get paid like a million dollars to play at Roman Abramovich's house? Did you ever have no, any? But I got, no, but I remember I got paid a shit ton of money to play uh, an exhibition in uh, Astana. This was... Uh, Astana, Uzbekistan. Astana. Yes. They were opening their new facility. And there's a funny story about it. Uh, I was scheduled to play with Baghdadis uh, exhibition. And uh, they fly me in there to basically come in the morning, play in the evening, and then fly the next day. And I remember we were flying in and there was clouds everywhere. And then in, like, where you can see the city, basically in a full circle, looking like a twilight zone, without any clouds. So I remember I landed and I asked the guy who was picking me up, this, this, this weird hole with no clouds around it. And he says, yes, the president called 
Putin or whoever to send the planes to clear up the, the skies. And I said, yes, but we're playing indoors. Doesn't really matter. He says, yeah, but he hates when it's cloudy. <laughs> Come on. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, Astana. Yeah. Astana. Shout out to Astana. Let's move into our fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis and make a change in the sport with no real aggravation, what would it be? I think that real changes are impossible without real aggravation. I would completely, completely, and when I say completely, Greg, change the way this sport is being led and organized. And I am talking about the WTA and the ATP. I think our sport is being terribly, terribly run. I think the people which are running it are doing a, a terrible job in doing so. And I think serious change is necessary so that people in this industry get the money and the funds that they actually deserve. You have said it before and I've heard it. Do you think the money is spread out horribly? I don't even think that the spread is, is terrible. You know, I, I don't want to be, and I don't think people should be hypocrites when at one point they say, well, look at the NBA, right? These guys are earning a shit ton of money. But if you look at the percentage of the wealth distribution in the NBA, there's a tremendous amount of players on minimum contracts. But the issue is that those minimum contracts are not even comparable or are comparable to a player which is, I want to say, top 30. And we're not talking about an unpopular sport. Tennis, by a lot of metrics, is a top five sport in the world if we talk about popularity. Am I right? We're not talking about gym popular. But I have nothing against the top guys are earning a shit ton of money. They should. They deserve it. I have an issue that Players are dumb enough to, to accept this abuse from the Grand Slams that the percentage which is given to the players, and I think this information even for the US Open is public, is between 10 and 12% of total revenue. The monetization of the players, of the funds which are being distributed, for the four Grand Slams which we currently have is between 10 and 12%. Workers in fucking H&M and Zara are getting eight. It's public information. 8% of the total revenue of the turnover of H&M goes to the workers. Tennis players get between 10 and 12. And then they get fooled by all of these prize money increases. So... I think our sport, male and female, is being run very poorly, horribly, and I think 
we are not even close to the funding what the players and the people in this industry deserve. Hey, man, first of all, I can't thank you enough. I had a, fun. That was a great chat. Yeah, man. We drove to Djokovic's club, drinking an espresso, and we just rocked the mic. I'm in Los Angeles. That's incredible. I, I had a lot of fun. It was very organic. I felt really I could speak my mind. I, don't, I never felt I had to control my voice or temper or whatever. So... I hope we can do it again in a few months. Yanko, my brother, I hope that we can see each other in person and do this uh, in person next time. Have a terrific rest of your week, and you are released. Thank you. Huge thank you to Yanko Tipsarovich. We'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout. And the new Quarantine Classic t-shirts are here. We are out of the white mediums. We have them in white and Terabat 2. The shirts are a throwback to the junior tennis tournament shirts we used to get as kids. They're selling like hotcakes. If you are interested, shoot me a message. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.